Hello, everybody. This is Queer Voices, a home-produced podcast that has grown out of a radio show that's been on the air in Houston, Texas for several decades. This week, Brian Lavinka talks with Portia Atasha Brown, an out lesbian who is running for criminal court judge in Harris County. So far, I've received the Texas Gulf Coast Union endorsement, which I'm very proud of, as well as today, the Houston Black American Democrats, uh, the Bay Area Democratic Movement, the Greater Heights Democratic Club, as well as Precinct 559. I'm so proud and grateful for their votes of confidence. Deborah Bell has a conversation with a gay TikTok influencer who has racked up over 2 million likes for his content. I call myself the accidental influencer. This was never part of the plan. <laughs> this was never something uh, I think some, someone as an elder millennial sets out to do. It's just something that I said, well, you know, while I have this, I might as well take advantage of it. Brian talks with the new president and CEO of Legacy Community Health, Bobby Hilliard. And we have news wrap from This Way Out. Queer Voices starts now. This is Brian Levinkin. Today on Queer Voices, we're speaking with Portia Natasha Brown for judge for Harris County Criminal Court at Law Number 3. Welcome, Portia, to Queer Voices. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So what is a criminal court versus a civil court in Harris County? Criminal courts are going to be ones that handle life and liberty. So with every criminal court, there's a chance that you could potentially have a jail punishment. And of course, there are alternatives, dismissal of your case, some kind of pretrial diversion, as well as probation. In Harris County, we have roughly three different kinds of criminal courts um, that touch criminal cases. So um, at the very top, you have your court of appeals cases. They handle both criminal and civil, but you know also criminal. And then felony district criminal courts. And then my court, which is a misdemeanor criminal court that handles low-level offenses. Who is Portia Brown and how does she get involved <laughs> with the law and legal stuff? Portia Brown is actually from Austin, Texas. I was born on a military base near there called Fort Hood. My parents met in the military and they're both army veterans. Um, After graduating high school, I went to Sam Houston State where I got my uh, bachelor's in criminal justice. I then was excited, very excited at 21 years old to move to the big city, Houston, Texas. Uh, There I studied for the bar exam for the uh, LSAT to get into law school and attended uh, the historically black law school, Thurgood Marshall, which is a part of TSU Texas Southern here in Houston. Um, I did have to leave Houston for a few years where I worked in the El Paso Public Defender's Office, uh, getting experience on the border and dealing with um, different issues that are affected by the border, such as language access, as well as uh, immigration. And and in that time period, I was a public defender. I am now here back in Houston and happy about it as a Harris County public defender. And so I got involved with the law because I care. I really want to make a difference. And I think representation is really important. So as a black female who's also openly lesbian, I want to make sure that people who are like me see people who look like us in these kind of positions as attorneys, public defenders, running for office, all of those things. Can you talk about the endorsements that you've received? Yes, I'm so excited. Um, It's been a hard process because they all require written applications and interviews. So far, I've received the Texas Gulf Coast Union endorsement, which I'm very proud of, as well as today, the Houston Black American Democrats, uh, the Bay Area Democratic Movement, the Greater Heights Democratic Club, as well as Precinct 559. I'm so proud and grateful for their votes of confidence. Why should Harris County vote for Portia? 
one thing that I have to say, and I say it every time, is that I care. Um, in my experience in being a public defender, having uh, judges that care is essential. Um, I care about the people that are accused and their rights, but I also care about crime victims. You know, I've been a crime victim in Houston, so I understand they want their time in court as well, and they want to be respected by the courts as well as law enforcement. And lastly, I care about the community. I've been active here in the LGBTQ community as well as the Black community, and I plan to continue to be that way. I plan to bring my diverse background, knowledge of the law, and my ability to have compassion and care to the bench to create a court that's fair and just for all. Um, if I may say, Brian, one of the cool things about this court is that it's an open seat. The previous judge is uh, actually a federal magistrate now. So right now we have a choice to pick someone that can bring everything I just told you to the bench to keep that court just as great as it has been. Can anybody in Harris County vote for this position? Yes. And I, I encourage them, <laughs> Brian, I encourage them to vote. Early voting starts February 14th. Election day is March 1st. Are you in what's called as a decisive primary? Will you go on to the general election? Yes. Yes, I am. So if I win the uh, primary coming up here in February, I would then go to the general election, which is in November. So that's when the fun begins. <laughs> yes. Um, first, this Democratic primary, which is uh, always a lot, you know, it's always exciting because the ballot's super long and you have to pick through so many names. And then, yes, a very exciting uh, general election in November. You know, I've heard that Harris County has like the longest ballot in the country. It wouldn't surprise me. I, I see all of the judges that are, you know, applying for endorsements as well. I see us all at campaign events and in the community, and there's a lot of us. We do have two different courts of appeals. We have 16 misdemeanor courts and about 23 felony courts. So we have a very long ballot here in Harris County. So can you tell me more about the law and why is the law important to LGBT community at large? Why is it important to have an LGBT person in the office? The law itself, when it comes to LGBTQ persons, it's, it's been our way to, to get the kind of fairness that we've always deserved, right? So when it comes down to it, I mean, I was studying for the bar exam when the Oberfeld decision came out about marriage equality, you know, and that was the way that we now can get married as same-sex persons. Um, and so the law has been the way for us to get the rights that we've always deserved. Um, of course, there's been tons of litigation over the years. Um, thankfully, we were able to get the same the same-sex equality marriage case done in 2015, and I'm hoping that we'll have continued um, passages of laws that help us and get us the fairness that we deserve. Uh, when it comes to being on the bench, it's important that a judge is unbiased um, and that they're fair to all and that they have knowledge of the law and they follow that law. So with that being said, one thing I will say about being a person that's from the LGBT community is that I can understand and empathize and pretty much be more understanding in what I need to ask of the defense attorneys and the state when it comes to resolving cases because of my background. Um, it's one thing to, um, if, if I must say, it's one thing to practice the law, but it's another thing to also have the life experience to understand the people that are coming into the court. That way you can treat them with respect and and make sure that they're taken care of in all the cases. So that's what I bring to the table. And I do think it's important that we have diverse judges, especially in Harris County. Houston's one of the most diverse cities. I think it's almost past New York when it comes to diversity. So this is essential that we keep that up. And they say that <laughs> we have passed New York. So it's important that our judges reflect our, the community at large. 
So before we go, is there anything else you want our listeners to know about Portia? Yes, absolutely. One thing about me, um, I'm a very proud public defender, meaning I handle criminal cases ranging from thefts all the way up to the law, you know, the most serious felonies you can think of right now at the Harris County Public Defender's Office. Um, What that does is it creates also the perspective for the bench that I will have, which is being able to know what works in real time in our criminal justice world. So I've seen what works and what doesn't work. And I plan to use that in our courts. Um, I'm just so happy to be here today. I love the show. I I listened to the interview about fortune. I couldn't go to her show, unfortunately, Um, didn't get any tickets, but I do love this show and I'm just happy to be here. Please vote in the Democratic primary starting February 14th. Election day is March 1st. Thank you so much. Thank you, Portia, for coming on. And this is Queer Voices. Part of our Queer Voices community listens on KPFT, which is a nonprofit community radio station. And as such, KPFT does not endorse or hold any standing on matters of politics. If you would like equal airtime to represent an alternative point of view, please contact us through kpft.org or our own website at queervoices.org. This is Queer Voices. A number of months ago, well, gosh, it's been well over a year, but during that time, there was this app that showed up called TikTok, and the then president was going to ban it. And I like didn't really understand or know much about TikTok. I knew people did dances on it. And I was like, oh, okay, but if he's going to ban it, I'm going to download it. <laughs> so that's how I got started on TikTok. And over the course of that time, I have discovered a number of content providers that I really enjoy. And a number of them are LGBTQA, however they identify. And when I reached out saying, I'd like to do an interview about people on TikTok, one of the first people to respond was Greg Keita. If you're on TikTok, you may know him from Gregisms. He is famous for his comedy content and his thoughts on life in general. He has, I don't know, at at the time that I read this, it said 1.5 million followers and has garnered over 20 million likes on his videos. So, Greg, what is it now? Uh, We're over 2 million now and about 40 million likes. Oh, my gosh. He's a teacher from New Orleans, and he is a theater teacher for students in kindergarten through seventh grade, and he turned this passion project of TikTok into a side business. So, Greg, why TikTok, and when did you get started? The million-dollar question. Well, I think like everybody, it, it, it was really at the beginning of the sort of first shutdown slash pandemic, if you will, where, uh, right around March of 2020, you know, when it all basically kind of went down, I suddenly found myself having a lot of time on my hand. And a friend of mine would constantly email me or message me TikToks. Like he would set, he started sending me these other people, other creators doing things and was like, you've got to get on this app. You've got to get in this app. And I'm what is considered, um, I hate this term because I think it, <laughs> there's no nice way to say it, but I, I, I'm an elder millennial. Um, <laughs> so. I feel like it's like a Hobbit type situation or like Lord of the Rings. That just sounds like I'm 
either that or I'm a, in the Mormon church or something. I don't know. It just, I hate that term. It makes me, it just makes me uncomfortable, but apparently that is what I am. So, you Whereas know, I'm an elder elder. Well, there you go. There you go. It was not on my radar at all, but then a friend started sending it to me and what is that old saying? Idle hands of the devil's playground. And so I got on it and I always joke that I said, you know, I, I awoke three days later from my TikTok coma because, you know, when you first download the app, you are, it's overwhelming. You, you, yeah, are you go down a rabbit hole. Oh, absolutely. Especially in the beginning, because, you know, the algorithm is throwing everything, every type of content at you to sort of see what you gravitate toward and what you like. So three days later, I, you know, awoke and was like, oh my gosh, this app is really fun. What I really liked about it was that it didn't take itself too seriously. And yeah, in the beginning, I'll say there were a lot of dances and stuff like that. But eventually I started finding different chefs and recipes. And I was like, okay, I found a lot of educational content on it and just a lot of comedy. And I was like, it reminded me of, of Vines back in the day. You know, it was real short to the point. It was just really interesting entertainment. And, I, and so initially I was like, well, why not? Why shouldn't I try this? So I started just kind of creating content. And yeah, that was hard to believe almost two years ago. That's insane to me. <laughs> TikTok, let's face it. There is a lot of and there's some weird stuff <laughs> and you just have to learn to scroll through it and use it in a way that's to your advantage. Just like with Facebook, you don't have to respond to everything. You just need to find the things where you can connect with people and find out information you want. It's how you use it. You're, you are empowered. I find that true with TikTok. There's a few people I follow or every now and then there's something new will come up and I'll go, oh, that looks interesting. But it doesn't consume a lot of my time. It is, I like to say it's great when you have a bathroom break. Absolutely. <laughs> you can enjoy it. And I do look forward to your TikTok so much because you're upbeat, you're fun, you, you're witty, and just the stories that you tell. Of course, I'm particularly entertained by the stories about your classes. And the <laughs> you say that the first grade lunch is where all the staff goes down. The romance is the inability to open a ketchup package. <laughs> so tell me a little bit oh, about yeah. working with the kids. Uh, working with kids has always been something that I feel like it's always been something that's been in my blood. You know, I've been teaching since I was about 18 years old in some way, shape or form. There's something about recognizing potential and sort of seeing it through, as well as guiding a young person into sort of just directions that they either knew they wanted or didn't know they wanted. I absolutely love it. I knew I always wanted to be a performer, and I luckily had a really great career for about 15 plus years. But all while I was performing, I always was teaching. It was always sort of in my blood. I remember when I was five, I asked my mom for like a, a chalkboard that I could have the house because I wanted, I liked playing teacher and I liked having the oh. chalk in my hand and, and all I that. I was wondering, um, I was wondering because you do have an extensive drama background. Uh, you have, let's see, originally from Cleveland, Ohio. And I do have a question about that, but you said that's where your mm -hmm. love theater was planted and nurtured. And then you wanted to escape Northeast Ohio and you went on to receive a BFA in drama from New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. And then your professional career has spent nearly 20 years in all sorts of media. 
this is what you're going to be known for, Greg, for the rest of your life. Boots <laughs> the monkey, right? Boots oh, 100%, the monkey from 100%. Dora the Explorer. And then I was on a phone call today with my mom. It's her birthday. My brother put a photo of me as Boots, and he was playing with a professional baseball team at the time. And he put that on as his background for the Zoom call. So trust me, it still haunts me. And you were in the Las Vegas production of Mamma Mia. You've been on General Hospital and Veronica Mars. And you were at the New York premiere of the Off-Broadway Hit Buyer and Seller. But you said that teaching has always been at the forefront of your career. And so you, you have all this background. So I'm, I envy those kids because I think they're probably getting some of the best theatrical direction that they'll ever have a chance of getting. How much time do you devote each day to TikTok? You know, it, it really honestly depends. It was in the beginning, you know, when I had nothing but time on my hands, especially when we were not working, I would say I, I dedicated way too much time to it and not necessarily actually making the content, but trying to think of the content. That was the hardest part in the beginning was finding my footing and figuring out what I was going to do on the platform. I would spend weeks coming up with an idea that I would think was funny and, and I would buy costumes and I would be editing for hours and, and sometimes the video would bomb and you're just like, okay, well, that was seven days of my life down the toilet. And I kept thinking, like, how are these creators just like constantly reinventing the wheel and whatnot? And it wasn't until about six months on the platform when I just started telling stories and talking about what was happening in my life that I actually started to really gain traction and gain a following. And that's when I realized like, oh, right, okay, stop trying to give them what you think they want and just be yourself. Um, right. Authenticity is something I talk a lot about, especially when I'm asked about TikTok because I mean, my favorite question people ask me is like, how do I get famous on TikTok? And I was like, okay, people, <laughs> if there was an answer to that, that actually was valid, then A, everyone would do it. And B, there is no answer to that question. However, what I do think, you know, it's a general sort of at least guide in that sense is being authentic, being authentically yourself, especially on that app. You know, I mean, I think Instagram is the app that, you know, you get to show the self you want, you wish you had and or you want people to think you have. And I think TikTok, you can't do that. That's what I love about it. You, you, you really sort of feel like the people you're watching are your friends or they are your colleagues or whatnot. You, you get a sense of who they are. So nowadays, it really just depends. I mean, uh, what I tell myself is, Greg, if you don't have anything to say, then don't say it. Like, I don't want to oversaturate my channel with content that isn't either something interesting or something that needs to be talked about. So I allow myself to take breaks from it. I know the algorithm probably doesn't like that, and maybe sometimes my views might suffer or whatnot, but I call myself the accidental influencer. This was never part of the plan. <laughs> this was never something uh, I think some, someone as an elder millennial sets out to do. It's just something that I said, well, you know, while I have this, I might as well take advantage of it. You know, in terms of like a regular video, I would say, you know, it takes anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour at the most. If it's something more involved, if it's doing, you know, a paid partnership or something like that, well, then, you know, then obviously I'm going to spend a little bit more time sort of curating the idea and figuring out what that is. But for the most part, it's like, okay, this just happened. I, let me talk about it. 
it's usually pretty quick, which surprises some people because I think they think I spend hours and hours and hours. No, One of the things that you do is you walk around your neighborhood or you talk about going to the post office or something that happened with a neighbor that came by that said something. And then, of course, there's the ones you do about the kids. So I'm teaching second grade and a kid raises his hand and he says, Mr. Greg, what are those? And he points to the angel cherubs on the proscenium. They look something like this. Yes, they're creepy as hell. So I say, those are the angel cherubs. And just when I think he's satisfied with that answer, he asks, are either of the angels gay? And then another one you do is where you go into stores. Tell me a little bit about that. Started, I was visiting my mom. It was actually for my birthday, which I find hilarious. I was like, I went to you. (laughs) I flew on a plane to go see you for my birthday. Okay, that's how that works. And she lives in Savannah, Georgia, which is beautiful, but I've been there millions of times. One of the things that I love going to do, though, is going to the outlet malls because they're really great there. Her little town has just exploded with shopping centers, and there were just a ton of stores there that I'd never heard of, and one of them was called At Home. So I just decided I was like, let's go in and check this store out, and I just immediately was just kind of enamored with home decor for a hot minute and was just like, why are there so many signs that say gather? And why is there an entire section devoted to wall art that has words on it? Um, you know, you know, it makes and me I think jokingly, of that commercial where the guy is telling people how to not become their parents. There's an insurance commercial and, they, and they're, oh, yeah, they're yeah, always yeah. pulling up a sign, one of those kind of signs. And he's like, no, no, don't do that. <laughs> Yeah. What, what I realized, actually, though, people are always asking me how, you know, because a lot of these stores, it's the first time I'm ever going in them. I ever. So that's that's why I film like my initial sort of reaction of like, oh, my gosh. And I get asked all the time, how have you never been in a and how have you never been in a and I I jokingly say, I'm like, look, I am gay, but I'm not that gay. And I think I missed the shopping gene. I loathe shopping for mm-hmm. mainly for the reason that I just I hate crowds. I hate people sometimes. <laughs> and I like the stress of driving in a parking lot, the stress of finding a spot, of dealing with people. It's annoying. So like I avoid it. I avoid it if I can. I do so much online shopping. Not, you know, yes, it's easy, but also I am such an impulse shopper. In the moment, I'm like, ooh, I need gloves. Boom, I'll go and find them and get it. As opposed to being like, oh, I should get in a car and go drive 30 minutes nascar my way to a to a shopping center so you know i go into these stores and and i very i say i lovingly roast them and i think i've I've gotten such a good response from the stores themselves which is surprising i definitely try to avoid low-hanging fruit in my content i never make fun of the person shopping there because to each his own i mean i went into a bass pro shop and was mortified for myself, because I felt so out of place, everybody there that worked there was absolutely lovely and in welcoming and inviting, but I just felt so out of my element, but they loved it. So rather than me going in there and being like, who would shop here? And, oh my God, the people, these are, this is disgusting. I just sort of lovingly roasted. it. I didn't realize that a taxidermy giraffe was something that <laughs> was needed in a store, but okay. Wow. You make sort of like, uh, I just make, you know, whatever observations. I went into Sam's Club for the first time and 
people are like, how have you never been to a Sam's? I was like, I've been single for the majority of my life. Why am I buying in bulk? Why would I go to a Sam's club for a 25 pound tub of peanut butter? <laughs> I don't have the need. So it was sort of a series that started to happen. And then people kept suggesting places to go. And that's been fun trying to find those places. Definitely when I was evacuated for the hurricane, when I got to go to a Bucky's for the first time, was eye-opening and I dare say life-changing. I don't know Which if hurricane um, was I that? Ever... that was Ida. Uh, and yeah, that, that is something the... you face being in New Orleans. Now, you went from Ohio, eventually you went to a bunch of other places. You've been around the country, but ended up in New Orleans. How much of your accent is affected? Because you sound like you're from New Orleans. Well, it's one of those things that I've lived in a lot of places. I've been to over 125 countries. I've had a really wonderful travel experience. You pick up the sort of sound and accent of wherever you are, especially when you're there for a long time. So, I mean, I'm not from New Orleans by any stretch. You know, y'all has literally become part of my everyday, all day. I don't even know if I could ever go back, even if I end up leaving here, because it just flies off the tongue so easily. And I definitely have not picked up, like, I would say, like a Cajun accent. I mean, I think Cajun people will still say they're trying to understand each other. So, I mean, it is its own specific sound. But there's just so much, uh, I would say, like, the vocal patterns here are just, it's like a warm hug. Everybody, especially, like, the women of color down here, everybody says, hello, my baby. And you just you just immediately get this. It's like a just a blanket of just love. And so I just find myself sliding into it a little bit. And it just comes naturally. So I don't know if affected is the right word as much as it is like absorbed. (laughs) I don't put it on for sure. It's the gumbo of the multiple cultures that went into forming New Orleans. Yeah. So that's how I think kind of you said warm and it's it's like it's really cold right now in a large part of the country and a good cup (laughs) of gumbo is just the thing. Well, let me ask you, who do you follow on TikTok? Who would be your top three? I follow a, it's sort of like music. I have a very eclectic for you page. Lately, I mean, I think some of my favorites are some of the OGs that I, that I still love. One of my, the first people I followed, she is an actress. I think it's called, it's Caitlin Hello. She does these parody characters of, she started with like a, a wasp mom and she just is so smart and she's so dead on. She just, she parodies everything from the soccer moms and wasp moms to like social media influencers to it, She's just really hilarious. And she's one of those people that does not post every day, but like when she does drop a video, it just, it goes viral immediately because her stuff is just so, so smart. I love it. So she was, she's still one of my faves. My friend, he's now a friend, sort of similar content. His name is Zachariah with like three Zs. He's uh, also an LGBTQ creator. He does a lot of store visits as well, but he has a character like a very New Jersey mom who goes into Target and is like, oh my God, look at the, look at the throws, look at the thing. He has a very sort of character take when he goes into stores. And when I was in Boston visiting my sister, we actually got the collab on a video, which was brilliant. It was really brilliant. He's, he's delightful. So I love him. and. I really all have now started following a lot of epidemiologists, especially with, with COVID and, mm. and all of the different variants and stuff like that. 
there's a couple that, that I really, really kind of gravitate toward because the one thing we found out during the pandemic was that everybody had a medical degree out of nowhere. Right. I, I decided why not go towards to the horse's mouth. So I, I watched those a lot as well. But there's, there's, yeah, there's so it's, I gravitate toward authentic content. But like I said, it's a combination of educational and things that make me laugh for sure. We all have such a limited time that I, that like most people, I go to TikTok to sort of escape and get lost in other people's point of view. So I definitely gravitate toward things that bring me joy and laughter. You're listening to Queer Voices. This is Deborah Moncrief Bell. I'm talking to Greg Keita, who's known through Gregisms on TikTok. And we're talking about his very popular TikTok platform. He is a content provider and he kind of stumbled into doing this, doing TikTok. When you first start, you get a minute. And I think after a certain amount of time and popularity, you're allowed up to three minutes. Mardi Gras will be coming up March 1st, and I know that you really love Mardi Gras. We had to adjust to the pandemic, so what did they do last year in New Orleans? Um, I mean, Mardi Gras 2020 was probably a huge super spreader event for the original coronavirus, but everything since then has been canceled. I mean, in fall of 2020, Jazz Fest was canceled. And then, you know, we were fingers crossed, please let Mardi Gras of 2021 go on. And we canceled Mardi Gras of 2021. And before 12th night, which is January 6th, well, actually, probably like end of November, someone decided to sort of say, hey, like, there's not going to be parades this year. What if we did house floats? And what if instead of having decorated floats going up the streets, we actually decorated the houses like parade floats? I read it really started as a joke that somebody said, turn your house into a float and throw all the beads from your attic at your neighbors walking by. And it took off. And not only did they come up with this concept, but they made arrangements so that it benefited people. And I just love that. There was an actual, she's sort of the captain of the crew, became known as the crew of house floats. Because, you know, all the parades here have a crew associated with them. Became crew of house floats. And yeah, it was sort of that idea of like, why don't we just throw throws and beads from our balconies and our houses? I think the idea was born there. And there were tons of organizations that got involved. There are so many artists down here in New Orleans and they, between Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest and French Quarter Fest and all the festivals that happen down here, that's how they make their living. And when all of that got canceled, these artists were truly, truly suffering and struggling. And so it was a really awesome way to kind of put these people back to work. So I found out about it late and I said, this is such an awesome idea and I want to do it. I want to be part of it. But I mean, at the time I was working, I was looking for a higher education job because I do teach college as well. And I was like, okay, I was in between gigs. I couldn't afford to do one of these house floats. <laughs> and so I turned to TikTok and I said, hey, guys, let's do a dollar Venmo challenge. You know, I didn't want to ask people for money, but I was like, everybody can afford a dollar. Venmo a dollar. Let's try to get these artists back to work at a house float done and all that. And we ended up raising like $15,000. I was able to hire a studio and I sort of came up with a theme. I love a pun. That is something I think my viewers sort of know. I, the Mardi Gras colors are purple, green, and gold. And so I sort of came up with this idea, what if I did purple, green, and golden girls? And so what if it was sort of a golden girls house float? 
And I talked to the studio and she was like, I love this idea. And then she took it and said, what if we had the Golden Girls doing like a second line and they were in like Mardi Gras colors. And I was like, love it, do it. And the house became one of the sort of most popular houses in the house floats last year. And so we were known as like the Golden Girls house. And I had all the girls on there and it was just super, super fun and colorful. And it kind of became this thing of like, oh my God, you had the Golden Girls house. And the funny thing is, is like, I love Golden Girls, but like, I would never call myself a super fan. Then all of a sudden people thought I was a Golden Girls aficionado. <laughs> so I get sent to the day, I still get sent Golden Girls things and books or memorabilia from people. And I'm just like, I mean, I'll take it, but like, I'm not a super fan, y'all. I don't really know all these quotes you keep quoting me. <laughs> you degrade. <laughs> right, exactly. I degrade. 100%. Is there anything you can tell us about what you have planned for this year? I announced it the other night on one of my lives that I did. I haven't made a video of it yet because I don't have the rendering from the artist yet because it's going to go. They got, I mean, the great news for them that was so successful last year, they were able, they, they had a lot more work this year from it because we're doing the house look again. So that's really good for them. So we're a little behind in getting it up, but it is going to be called Pure Imagination. Oh. And it is going to be a Willy Wonka extravaganza. Oh, I love it. So it is a Candyland, uh, like Candyland, like on speed, basically, is what I'm calling it. I have, we have all of the characters. We have candy bars, golden ticket, golden eggs, just, just sort of everything. I mean, I, I have so much stuff in the front of my house just waiting to go up. I wanted something big, colorful. It's, it's one of my favorite movies. One of my favorite quotes from that and, and just Gene Wilder in that movie is just iconic. And I just said, I need, I need a Wonka float. It's going to be awesome. Will there be Oompa Loompas? There are some Oompa Loompas going to be up there as well. I don't, I don't know if I'm not going to have any live Oompa Loompas. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> those, those little I, guys are kind of creepy. Right. I'm paying actors to stand outside my house for a month. That would be, that would, that I would get arrested for that. Probably that would be inhumane, especially now it's so cold. We've been talking to Gregory Keita. He is a TikToker and he wants to help you find your joy. And he's doing just that, making millions of people laugh every day on his TikTok, Gregisms. And I'm going to close out with giving these remarks that I read because find your joy kind of became your catchphrase. And for 2022, you say, it's the year of you. That doesn't mean it's all about you. It means we're taking five minutes a day that we're checking in with ourselves and being the best versions of us that we can be. He also reminds you that in 2022, we have to take care of ourselves. No one is coming to do it for us. Thank you so much, Greg. You do bring me joy every day. Well, that is so delightful to hear. Thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Okay. And thank you for taking the time. This is Glenn from Queer Voices. You're listening to KPFT. That means you're already participating just by listening. But how about doing more? KPFT is totally listener-funded, which means it's people like you who are making donations who support this community resource. KPFT has no corporate or government strings-attached funding, which means we're free to program responsibly but without outside influence. Will you participate in KPFT financially? This station needs everyone who listens to chip in a few dollars to keep the station going because that's the way it works. 
Even if you're listening over the internet on another continent, you can still contribute. Please become an active member of the listener community by making a tax-deductible contribution. Please take a minute to visit kpft.org and click on the red Donate Now button. Thank you. This is Brian Lubinka, and today we're speaking with the new CEO and President of Legacy Community Health, Bobby Hilliard. Welcome, Bobby, to Queer Voices. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here, and thanks for, ha- uh, for having me on the show. I guess you have big shoes to fill. How do you go about doing that? I've known of Legacy for a while and known of Katie Caldwell, so I'm honored to um, get the chance um, to um, shepherd Legacy for the next 40 years or 25 years, as Katie did. Um, And so having been on the board of Legacy in the mid-late 2000s, I've gotten to see the evolution of it, so I think I'm very well prepared to make sure that legacy continues the journey it started and to serve the community. And so I think it's important to note that you're a member of the LGBT community. Yes, I am very proud of it. Why is that important for an organization like legacy? I think that legacy's roots as an LGBTQ plus organization is important. And As everyone, I won't go through the history of legacy, you know, as we all know, but just briefly started in 78 as a clinic to, for testing for gay men in the eighties became a testing center for HIV and that was its roots, right? And since the early 2000s, once we became a public qualified health center, we've expanded into families, um, obstetrics, pediatrics, behavioral health, but at the heart of it, we are still a health home for everyone, regardless of, you know, where you are in your health journey, regardless of who you love, regardless of what you look like. And so I think that having someone who is um, part of the LGBTQ plus com, um, community really ensures that continues. So you mentioned the history. What is your thoughts about the future of Legacy? Oh, I think that legacy is um, going to, you know, we will do certain things. I mentioned previously, we're going to make sure that legacy is a health home for everyone, right? No, and regardless of your ability to pay. And I think that um, we will look across Southeast Texas and make sure that where we see an opportunity to expand, we do that and we open new clinics. As an example, for instance, we are trying to, we set a place called Well the wellness bar by legacy we have one clinic on west time we open another one in katie and that's meant for people to really walk in and get same day prep right because you think that prep is very important for um for for people to be on to prevent the spread of hiv and aids also we are going to look deep 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 into what else we can do for the community lgbt plus community this has been a long day already You know, we also are going to get into the Medicare space. We are opening a Medicare clinic specifically for the elderly and the senior population um, in two weeks, and I've been planned in July, right? Typically, people who have sat in our clinics, they are full of awesome kids and pregnant moms and other people. But, you know, if you're 65, you may not think that's a place for you. Want folks to know that Legacy is a place for them also. Can you tell us about your background? Sure. I'm a Texas boy. Brian, I was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. I went to undergrad at year six at Austin. Majored in social work. I was going to save the world. I tell people I've still got plenty of work to do. 
Um, then went back to medical school um, in San Antonio, came to Houston to do my OB-GYN residency. After that, I opened a private practice here in Houston. So I know the healthcare community very, very well. Along that journey, as most of us did, you know, sort of realized who I was sexually and that I was a gay man. And uh, being a black kid from the South, that was sort of a process for me to go through, right? To realize who I was and accept who, um, who I was. And luckily, I had very loving and supportive parents who were still black parents, right? Living in the South. But I think as much as they could be, they were very supportive. My father had a long history of serving the black community in San Antonio. He was an OBGYN also. He was a second black city council person there. He was the first black president of Texas Medical Board. Um, so I, I've got, I, I have big shoes to fill when it comes to my family also. I have two beautiful, beautiful sons who are now 25 and 19. And I have a partner, Greg, who is um, better than I deserve. He is an amazing, amazing man. And how does he feel about your new role? Oh, he's excited. Actually, to be honest, he is the first person um, who kind of sort of put the bug in my ear about the role. Um, he and I were in Washington, D.C. I was on the board of Age United. I was actually the chair at the time. And Katie Colwell was on the board, um, was on the board also then. And we were in D.C. for a meeting, and we were talking to Katie. And after Katie walked off, Greg mentioned, hey, I think one day if Katie retires, you should consider taking that role. And I was like, really? I, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the first thing on my mind. And so, so Greg was very supportive. He thinks it's where he believes it's where I should have been all along. So he's very happy. I mean, we've always talked about the post-Katie days, and now that they're here, what are the challenges that you see for Legacy going forward? I think we touched on a little bit, right? And so I think my first challenge really is how do I make sure our community, I by our community, I mean the LGBTQ plus community, knows that we're still there for them, you know, right? Again, if you walk into one of our clinics, they're filled with awesome, awesome families, right? Who, who are sort of, may, may look very traditional, right? Mom, dad, pregnant, you know, kids, but we're still there for everyone, regardless of what you, of what you look like in or who you love, right? And so I think that's the first challenge of how do we still let the community know we're here for them? And so that's one challenge. I think the rest are really just opportunities and great opportunities, right? There's still a great need for healthcare. And so I think as we continue to expand, I'm very excited about that. I think that getting into something called value-based care is important for legacy. So as an example, Brian, if you called a plumber to your house, to fix your kitchen sink because it was clogged. If the plumber left, the kitchen sink was still clogged. You probably wouldn't pay them, right? You'd say, look, you didn't unclog my sink, so I'm not going to pay you. Uh, Value-based care is something where payers and the government are going to start saying, look, we appreciate that you saw the patient and we're going to pay you something for that. But the patient's disease state has not gotten better, right? You have not cured their or you've not improved their diabetes or improved their high blood pressure. So value-based care is saying, look, we're also going to say, how can providers help patients who are not within the four walls of their clinic? And so we're going to start doing that too, having programs out there that engage more patients outside the four walls of our clinic. 
Can you talk friend. about the reach of the trans community and what Legacy is doing to get in, more involved with that community? So I think that Legacy has always been there for the trans community, but we've made some missteps, right? And we're working on that. I think that, you know, um, we understand that their needs are very specific, they're important, and we are working on that process to make sure we are better able to meet the needs of our population. And, you know, and so stay, so stay tuned for that. I don't want to give any details just yet because I think it's going to be a, a bigger process to make sure that we are very inclusive of a plan to make sure that their needs are addressed. I think the vision is to be legacy as a one-stop shop for all LGBT healthcare. Would you agree? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. We are, and we need to make sure that we have processes in place to make sure everyone at our organization is sensitive to certain needs of certain populations, right? Transgender being one of them, there's some others also. So but, but I agree 100%. We are the health home for everyone, regardless of what you look like, your, your, or your health status. So I should disclose that I'm a board member of Legacy. Yes, Ryan. Thank you very much. And, you and I wouldn't, well. I wouldn't support it unless I believed in it completely. Brian, you have been a supporter of Legacy. I, I can't even imagine how many years now. Twenty years? A long time. Long time. Montrose Clinic days. Yes. What do you have on your agenda for the next couple of months for Legacy? I think that as we look at, we are opening a clinic in two weeks for Medicare. And we are looking at expanding with our Methodist grant, as you may as you may have heard. Methodist gave Legacy fifty million dollars to open two new clinics. So, in the process of choosing those locations, um, so we're we're actually very very busy. So, I think for the next two months, we will be looking at sort of making sure our new clinic is operating well, and we choose two new locations for our, our two new clinics. I guess talk about the Methodist grant. That's pretty important. It's so important. It's so important that Methodists who are who's been a partner of Legacy for a very long time realizes that look, there are people in their communities who need help, and it's it's amazing that they said, look, here's fifty million dollars to open two new clinics. It's it's amazing. It was an amazing gift. Um, Sheree Boystrom, who was our head of development, helped shepherd that gift, um, and then the rest of the team will be very instrumental in implementing those clinics a very important and amazing gift, the largest one Legacy's ever received. $50 million. There's no small potatoes. In conclusion, what do you want our listeners to know more, more about Legacy? I just want the listeners to know that even though we have grown tremendously, we are in Houston, Beaumont, Port Arthur, and Deer Park, and counting, right? That we are still a health home for the LGBTQ plus community. We may not always get it right, and we, won't, and we won't always get it right, but we are trying to improve to make sure that you know no matter what, or when you walk in your our doors, you are accepted for who you are, regardless of your ability to pay, regardless of what you love, regardless of what you look like, regardless of your disease state, we accept you. We're speaking to Bobby Hilliard, the new CEO of Legacy Community Health. And Bobby, where can people find out information about Legacy? LegacyCommunityHealth.org. This is Queer Voices. 
I'm Michael LeBeau. And I'm Melanie Keller. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending January 22, 2022. Chilean President-elect Gabriel Boric has named two openly queer people to his strikingly progressive cabinet, another reminder that elections have consequences. Lesbian Alexandra Bonato will serve as sports minister in Chile's majority women cabinet. Gay Marco Antonio Avila will be Education Minister. Movimiento de Integración y Liberación Homosexual, Movil, is the country's major LGBTQ advocacy group. Spokesperson Javiera Sunega celebrated the diversity in a statement that read in part, Sexual orientation and gender identity are irrelevant for the positions. Capability is the only thing that matters. Fourteen of Boric's new 24-member cabinet ministers are women. Like Boric, several are former student protest leaders. The president-elect said in announcing his choices on January 21st, We have formed this team with people who are prepared, with knowledge, with experience, and committed to the agenda of changes that the country needs. The young president-elect will turn 36 before he and his cabinet begin work in the South American nation on March 11th. That's the day after lesbian and gay couples can begin tying the knot under recently enacted marriage equality legislation. Marriage equality was unanimously rejected by the Constitutional Chamber of the Supreme Court of Justice of Honduras on January 17th. The ruling came in two related cases. The plaintiffs say they will now take their cases to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, the judicial arm of the Organization of American States. Honduras is bound by that court's 2017 ruling for non-marriage equality countries in the region to open the civil institution to gay and lesbian couples. Of the 20 member nations of the Organization of American States, 12 still deny them that right. However, those governments can flaunt the inter-American court's decision because it carries no enforcement powers. Meanwhile, Mexico is essentially piecemeal marriage equality. Its Supreme Court ordered a state-by-state -state process that still leaves six of its 31 states standing at the altar. It's official. Taiwanese gay husbands Wang Chen Wei and Chen Chun Ju are the island's first queer family to adopt a child together. The formal adoption papers were signed on January 13th. Under current laws, married queer couples can only adopt their respective biological children. Wang postponed his wedding to Chen in order to adopt the child as a single parent without complications. Late last year, a family court in the city of Kaohsiung gave Chen the green light to adopt Wang's adopted child. Signing the papers this week completed the process. Activists' enthusiasm for the action was tempered by the fact that it sets no precedent. Although Taiwan is the first jurisdiction in Asia to open civil marriage to same-gender couples, it declined to include equality in adoptions. A bill to remedy that omission has languished in the legislative yuan for more than a year. After their historic adoption became official, Wang told reporters that he and Chen are not a charity case. We shouldn't have had to fight for it. Another thing Taiwan's marriage equality legislation did not include was recognition of binational couples. Japan's international news service, NHK, reports that 42-year-old Ariyoshi Isiburo and his 34-year-old Taiwanese partner, Lei Oyi Jen, have filed a lawsuit in the city of Taipei, 
The couple is demanding that civil authorities accept their marriage registration. Their lawyer says it's the first time a Japanese citizen has been involved in such a legal action abroad. At least seven U.S. states rang in the new year banging a new batch of bills to limit the rights of transgender and non binary young people. NBC News counted at least nine measures in Alabama, Arizona, Indiana, Kentucky, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, and South Dakota. They aim to prevent trans and NB youth from participating in school sports, from using campus bathrooms that correspond to their gender identity, and from receiving gender affirming health care. More than 280 anti queer bills were introduced in 33 state legislatures in 2021, according to the National LGBTQ Human Rights Campaign. At least 130 of them specifically targeted transgender people. Bills to ban trans student athletes from competing under their gender identity passed in Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Mississippi, Montana, Tennessee, Texas, and West Virginia. The sponsors of these measures are almost exclusively Republican. They claim they want to protect a level playing field for cisgender girls and women in school sports and to prevent young trans people from making medical decisions they might later regret. They also cite potential disruption in gender segregated public facilities. Speaking to NBC News, longtime trans advocate and media manager for the National Women's Law Center, Gillian Branstetter, called it a hostile and dangerous trend that I'm sure we'll see continue through the year. The vice presidential pet made famous by two children's books has died. Marlon Bundo was owned by the daughter of former U.S. Vice President Mike Pence, Charlotte Pence Bond. She made Marlon famous as BOTUS, Bunny of the United States, in her children's picture book about the black and white rabbit, illustrated by Karen Mother Pence. Hot on Marlon's heels hopped a parody published by late night comedy host John Oliver that outsold the original. A Day in the Life of Marlon Bundo lampooned Pence's well known opposition to marriage equality. Marlon falls for another boy rabbit, only to be blocked from marrying him by the stink bug, an official with a less than subtle resemblance to Vice President Pence. The parody publication was dedicated to every bunny who has ever felt different, and all proceeds were donated to the teen queer youth suicide prevention group, The Trevor Project, and to AIDS United. Now a reporter for the Daily Wire, Charlotte Pence Bond said at the time that she bought Oliver's book to support those charities, as well as the charities her book supported. She tweeted the news of the rabbit's passing on January 15th, writing, Marlon, God brought you to us right when we needed you most. Many queer kids can say the same. Finally, the U.S. Department of Education is investigating the largest Mormon university in the world for bias against LGBTQ people. Complaints that Salt Lake City, Utah based Brigham Young University is violating the civil rights of queer students sparked the probe into whether enforcement of its honor code of conduct unfairly targets them. Conduct totally acceptable among hetero students can even lead to an LGBTQ person being expelled. The federal investigation began late last year, according to the Salt Lake Tribune. The revelation comes on the heels of reports that BYU had banned all protest actions around the iconic Y on the mountain overlooking the school. Last March, activists lit it in rainbow colors, and BYU could not have that happen again. It's just kind of like one step forward, two steps back. BYU junior Christian Hunt told local TV station KSTU that he's cautiously optimistic that pressure from the feds will lead to significant changes. I've grown up in Utah. 
and I understand kind of the invincibility that the Mormon church can have. And so I kind of was like, wow, this is so cool. But somehow BYU escapes it every time. Senior Everett Patterson told the TV station, Queer students are held to a different standard than straight students because a straight student wouldn't be expelled for going on a date or holding hands or kissing. That's news wrap. Global Queer News with Attitude for the week ending January 22nd, 2022. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. And you can read the transcript and listen to News Wrap each week by subscribing to our This Way Out radio channel on YouTube. For This Way Out, I'm Michael LeBeau. Stay healthy. And I'm Melanie Keller. Stay safe. This has been Queer Voices, which is now a home-produced podcast and available from several podcasting sources. Check our webpage, queervoices.org, for more information. Queer Voices executive producer is Brian Lovinka. Andrew Edmondson and Jack Valensky are frequent contributors, and Summer Iman is our webmaster. Music on this podcast is partly sourced from local queer artists and coordinated through Matthew Williams, who also originates the Artist Spotlight series. The News Wrap segment is part of another podcast called This Way Out, which is produced in Los Angeles. Some of the material in this program has been edited to improve clarity and runtime. This program does not endorse any political views or animal species. Views, opinions, and endorsements are those of the participants and the organizations they represent. In case of death, please discontinue use and discard remaining product. For Queer Voices, I'm Glenn Holt.